0: Howdy! Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech,
1: oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks.
0: And we're live. Hi everybody! Welcome to Under Radio, episode thirty. We have an awesome show for you today, and it's for several several reasons. One of one of the reasons, the most important reason, is that Matt Hall is hosting today. He is running our technology behind the scenes, and uh, it's it's so
1: far so good, wouldn't you say, Matt? It seems to be going perfectly, but let's let's not dwell on that, okay. <laughs> just in case it, we draw an unnecessary amount of attention to the technology and... I will mention... You know, provoke it.
0: <laughs> I will mention this, that we, we're an expert, <laughs> as you guys know, as you listeners know, we are an expert podcasting uh, professional group with n- never have any issues. Um, Matt's <laughs> a secondary computer, which is how we host the undersampled radio account on a backup computer, is not in the room. Not in the room, folks. So uh, it's pretty hilarious to watch him run back and forth from room to room hosting this thing. Second reason this episode is awesome, I have to shout this out because our audience is the best ever. So here we have, oh, where am I? A microphone. You can't see this if you're listening to the podcast, but if you're watching on YouTube, you can certainly see it. Um, this is the weirdest looking and coolest microphone ever. It has a built-in pop filter, so John Lehman, if you're listening, you can tell me how my audio sounds. Um, but it was it was donated by another one of our listeners. So that's actually the second second microphone that's been donated, and it's just, it's awesome. I'm, I'm honored to have such a kind and generous audience. So thank you to that listener.
1: <clears throat> And to a all. kind of <laughs> generous audience that hates how we sound. <laughs>
0: <That's funny. laughs> um, Matt has some big news for you guys, and several of you who are listening to this are going to be participating in this first news bullet point. Let it go.
1: EAGE, so the European Association of Geoscientists and Engineers, uh, annual meeting is in June. We are hosting a hackathon right before it, the weekend before. And uh, imagine my dismay when I got invited to the EAGE workshop on machine learning on the Sunday of the hackathon. Um, (laughs) uh, Especially after, but both essentially inviting EAGE to sort of take part in sort of promoting the hackathon and proposing a machine learning workshop. (laughs) Then being invited to one on the day of the event that I was organizing. So um, happily, the conveners of the workshop were absolutely uh, awesome about it and um, immediately sort of asked DAG the if they could move the workshop, which they have. So the machine learning workshop will now be on uh, Monday, the 12th of June. It's being, oh gosh, I think it's being uh, convened. The two of the conveners are from Total and um, uh, two of the conveners are from IFP in Paris, the Institut Francais de Pretor, or something like that. And um, I also, I'm, I, well I won't say too much, but I'm hoping that we get uh, some teams from Total, because uh, some folks there are pretty interested in the event. Um, so it's, like, my pl- I think I've said that my plan is to try and get more than 50 hackers there this time. So that would be epic, because we haven't had more than, kind of, I think 22 or something might be the record, so more than double uh, sort of previous record. So, um, anyway, all things pointing and heading in the right direction. So I'm very happy about that.
0: Excellent. Do we yeah. have? Uh, is there somewhere we can go to visit the uh, the EAGE machine learning thing that maybe has some summary of topics, etc.?
1: There totally is, and I, I should have put that in the what's name, but uh, yeah. I expect you could Google around and find it, but I will put a link to all the workshops. Completely uh, professional.
0: Completely Very professional, professional. professional. <laughs> podcasting crew we have here.
1: Being reminded, uh I will I will do that. I won't try and do it on this computer because things will go wrong.
0: Hey, uh did I tell you about um Numeri or Numeri? Did you hear about this?
1: I feel like it maybe we mentioned it once because it came up on on um uh, software underground, right? But yeah, what
0: what is Numerai? It is a, as they say, a new kind of hedge fund, where they accept buy sell predictions from their. Uh, hey, look at this. Lucas is posting the link that uh, right there in Swung. Um, oh. <laughs> sorry, Numerai is the uh, is a is a hedge fund that takes predictions from its sort of crowdsourced opinions. Uh, about uh, buy-sell recommendations. So you build a model and you submit your predictions and if you do a good job at predicting, they pay you money
1: for your predictions. Right, they pay Pretty you cool. Bitcoin, right? Yeah. Uh, and the deal is that they release new data every week or something and you make predictions for the following week or how, how does the, what's the sort of cycle?
0: Yeah, that's right. So it's a new, it's a a new data set every week, every seven days, the data is anonymized and encrypted. So you don't actually know what stock information you're looking at. All you receive basically is encrypted feature vectors or, you know, just random uh, floats, floating point numbers. Hmm. And uh, you build whatever kind of model you want and you submit your predictions on, they they give you a, a training every week, a training data set and a, Prediction data set, which is a tenth the size of the training data. And um, it's kind of cool. So you can do whatever you want. I built a neural network, a deep neural network feed forward to do this. Um, because you don't really know that much about the structure of the data, I'd be interested to hear from our guest in a little bit how you might apply some recursive techniques to it. So, anyway, um, check it out N U M E R
1: dot A I. It's pretty cool. It sounds sounds really interesting. It makes you, uh, yeah, just reminds me in a, I mean, it's not the same at all, but there's a a thing in uh, Norway that I'll try and remember to put a link to uh, where you can, I think it's actually an app, a mobile app, and they basically get people to vote on the outcome of wildcat exploration wells. Um, So they're trying to sort of crowdsource, basically, see if you know, the crowd can match or beat any other kind of prediction about what the success rates are going to be and maybe inform uh, risking of future wells and that kind of thing. But I love that idea of kind of crowdsourcing opinion like that. I wonder what uh, a Numeri-like model could do with the oil price.
0: Well um, there is certainly uh, more wit in the crowd than there is in an individual is why I would like to source some opinions from our crowd of one today. We have, <laughs> how bad was that? We have Dr. Jackie Floyd here on the line with us. She is a research scientist and I think owner of Element uh, Labs
2: List. Yeah. Or principal. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's a, yeah. It's a company registered in Texas. So cool.
0: Well, we'll see. We'll, we'll, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. We'd we'd like to hear a little bit more about. And I said it backwards. It's Element List Labs. What um, you can you actually can find a link to that in the show notes, Matt. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit more about Element List and what what it is and what it does. Um,
2: well, Element List Labs is like a, kind of like a meta company or something. I I uh, started it back in May when um, the startup I was working at kind of. I uh, ran out of money <laughs> and, um, and I'm using it kind of as a home for basically a lot of all my research, all my little side projects, everything that um, that I've been either working on in the past, for example element list to uh, new projects like um, some work on natural language processing I've been doing lately and, and it's all kind of under the element list labs umbrella. And um, so, lab is really just a great way of saying this is my little playground and anything can happen here. And uh, the element list name really just came from this old website that uh, called element list.com um, uh, that I actually started in 2004 and uh, ran it for a few years and then moved on to other things uh, in the internet world and then took the site offline and literally just like fired up the old code. Uh, got some upgrades uh, in the last few months, and um, the the inspiration for elementlesscom well, in 2004, was the fact that uh, uh, research groups, and at the time I was at Lamont-Georges Observatory at Columbia, uh, were being asked by National Science Foundation to put all of their databases online. And that was still pretty early days, right? I mean, Google had only been around five years at the time. and um, so I said to myself, well, there ought to be a place you can go on the internet to find all of these databases and you know other information. So I just you know kind of puttered around on the internet and, and put this website together. And then um, uh, suggested I add a blog to it, so I added a blog and I started blogging about science. And every time I was you know I, I was adding things to elementlist.com on my own. Um, and when I come up, come up with something interesting, I blog about it. And I ended up getting emails and notes from CEOs of little startups. And, uh, and eventually, I started getting invited to conferences. because there really weren't that many science bloggers at the time. And I went to the first ever science blogging conference. I was invited to uh, Google Science Conference, which is um, an invitation-only thing run by uh, Tim O'Reilly and, um, and some people from uh, Nature. And, uh, and so I, I went to that, and I got to meet. Larry Page, Sergey Brin, Martha Stewart was there. Um, she was actually the plus one for a, a Microsoft exec who was her boyfriend. It was, it was an interesting conference, and um, she had—I think she'd been out of jail for about a year—and she was joking about that, which was just funny. And um, anyway, I just—I decided like the whole internet world is much more interesting than what I was doing um, at, at the time. I, I was at Exxon when I was starting to get invited to these conferences, and. Uh, and so I left Exxon, went back to New York. I've been wanting to go back to New York, and kind of jumped into the internet world. And, you know, doing at the time it was called uh, analytics, web analytics, but now it's, it's kind of morphed into data science and machine learning. And um, and that was sort of like my my introduction to sort of the big data world. And then the last couple of years, I've come back into uh, geophysics. Managed to move to Texas about six months before the. Uh, the oil price is plummeted, <laughs> and um, and yeah, they got picked up by a, a startup called S File about a year and a half ago. That, that's focusing on machine learning and natural language processing for oil companies. And um, so, finally, like just in the last couple of years, I've been able to kind of merge uh, data science slash machine learning with geophysics and kind of bring those two fields together.
0: Which is basically the entire thrust of this podcast. Every single episode, <laughs> we talk about machine learning as it applies, and not as it applies to geosciences. So, one, I, I'm just going to jump right to the to the big one that I want to know here because I want to do this. What what are people paying for? What are companies paying for in the geo space, uh, in the geo machine learning space? Well, yeah,
2: that's a good question because. Um, so, well, I don't, I don't know how much I can say about my former startup. I'm, I'm probably bound by whatever piece of paper I signed, but um, but right now it's, it's a matter of getting all of the data because oil companies have had tons of, you know, well logs that are just, for example, they're, they're just gifts, you know, like and and just images and and literally like hundreds of thousands and um, and. And they have data, you know, stored in like Excel files, and they get reports sent to them by email rather than like in a nice data stream going into a nice database. And they have like, you know, still have plenty of paper copies, like in you know, caves or basements, you know. And and so right now, I think uh, part of the the challenge is just kind of gathering up all that data because I was just reading an article about this the other day. The the real um value is is in the data i mean nowadays you know you can download tensorflow you can you know read about all sorts of you know different algorithms that are out there i'm sure there's a learning curve but but without the data to train it on they're not very useful right and so and oil companies have always been very protective of their data so it's actually i think what i found is it's going to be hard for the consultants to really penetrate because unless you have some secret thought or something that they can't um come up with you know on their own or just hire more data scientists that you, you have to have access to that data right to, yeah. to start to build a model or do something predictive and um, there are still startups on the outside that are working kind of working their way in which which in, in some ways is necessary because oil companies are so conservative by nature and and you know they're Kind of slow to jump into this area, which I experienced being at an oil company trying to do machine learning uh, here in Texas just within the last couple of years. And um, but but I I think that let's see what was your question again? (laughs) I got off track. Um,
0: I guess the summary of the question is uh, what what kind of commercial applications are there for machine learning in in the geo world?
2: Well, obviously, you want to be able to predict where the oil is, right? Where to drill, and then, um, and then, in the more complicated cases of, uh, say, fracking, you want to know how to complete the well so you can maximize your production. So there might be all kinds of, um, you know, combinations of parameters. What kind of, I don't know, do you use, or something like that, that that can influence the productivity. Which is also, you know, it's not just the engineering part, but also whatever particular geological type of rock you happen to be in. Are you in a shale? Are you in a limestone? Are you in a sandstone, etc. And and then maybe what kinds of oils you have. So so that's the machine learning problem. Being able to um, come up with the right combination of parameters for a given well and a given formation to to know what what you need to do to maximize production. And you can do that in a sort of static. Way, or you could do it in a dynamic, real-time way. And obviously, the closer you get to real time, the better, because then you can respond to things. But, but even in the, um, I guess I call it more, you know, static approach, or just looking at historical data, you can at least start to make business cases for why you should drill one well a particular way, or you know, to your management team.
0: Mm-hmm. So. In five years from now, down the road, do we need uh, geological interpreters?
2: I think those, uh what we're going to need them, we're going to need them. And in fact, uh, the interesting thing that I saw uh, having been uh, sort of a, a geophysicist with machine learning skills in an oil company and then a geophysicist in a tech company surrounded by computer scientists um, is that the, that there's a there's a, a gap there's a gap in skills and there's a gap in um, kind of just the language and, and terminology and, and mindset that that, they, that people have so uh, just to give an example um, there was a case where I was working with some computer scientists and uh, on, on gathering data and there's uh, some geochemical data and that you know they, they thought it was messy right because it's, it's not they, they thought that um you know, the seismic data and the, and the digital well log data was so much better because it was nice, clean, precise numbers that they could calculate. But they didn't really know how to deal with like these oil measurements that were made by a mere human in a lab, right? But but the oil, that that's the stuff you're trying to get out of the ground. That's what you, that's the gold, right? And um, and so they, the fact that they didn't see that or, or that it took a while for them to catch on was just sort of an example to me of, of the kind of biases that computer scientists have and, and how someone with a, a good geological and geophysical background can identify opportunities that, that someone with a pure CS background would miss. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, do long th- answer. <laughs> well yeah I mean I think it's um it's really interesting, right? Because it's always been I, I don't know if I'd call it a barrier, but certainly a fear for the adoption of, of AI um, I guess probably in any industry is that it's gonna take jobs away but we've, we've talked before on the show about how we feel like it, it might actually make jobs more interesting but um, you know by because it focuses you on the things that actually are really unknown and not the things that you just sort of needs something to go interpret right no matter how mundane or, or, or whatever now maybe it takes fewer people to do that really interesting work I'm not sure um, that's a problem that might have take, taken care of itself in the last sort of two years, but um, I wonder if there's um, a sort of literacy gap then uh, that somehow needs to be filled and what do you think are the, um, you know, I mean, a lot of people are obviously newly out of work or they're doing a Geophysics degree right now and wondering like how they can be useful in the, in the job market Like what what do you think are some of the sort of uh, gaps that need to be addressed if we are going to be working on those interesting problems and they're not just going to disappear off into the realm of computer science never to sort of involve us again?
2: Um, Yeah, so I think the domain experts are in a better spot than the computer scientists. I mean the computer scientists are still, Hmm. you know, classifying numbers and cat pictures and and you know, because they don't have the domain knowledge of geology or geophysics, they don't know what problems to, to tackle. But if you were to give a geologist or geophysicist the computer skills and, and you don't obviously more is better, but if they knew, you know, some basic algorithms, you know, some object oriented programming, they move away from Fortran and MATLAB, which I'm sure is great, but really, you know, they need to be learning how to, you know, code better, <laughs> um, then, then the, it won't run away from them. They'll, in fact, I, I think the geophysicists and geologists would, are in a better spot to come up with new and interesting applications. And, um, and the the jargon around machine learning is sort of intimidating at first, but I've found that um, but actually especially geophysicists already have most of the uh math and, and and you know quantitative background you know we do signal processing we know linear algebra usually um you know the uh, you know calculus physics all, all that, you know kind of quantitative stuff um but, but there is some jargon and and uh, a way of thinking when it comes to computer science not just coding but the computer science behind coding that um could make geologists and geophysicists better at coming up with their own models. And, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think what someone earlier asked about uh, deterministic problems, I think there's gonna be a, a good mix of, of using statistical approaches to some of our more like classic geological and geophysical problems that could produce interesting new results.
1: Mm, right, right
2: really
1: big. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a huge opportunity, right? Um, it, it, I, 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 I mean, I really hope we see more people get, get, getting that literacy, learning some of the jargon, so they can communicate and read papers, and and not being too intimidated by that initial like, you know, um, the shock of the new kind of thing that can, can. I think some people just get kind of turned off by it, but. Um, I think, I think this year is going to be a really interesting, like right the time we're in right now, it's going to be really interesting to see people making that, jumping that, that divide kind of thing. I've been really bl- blown away lately, but I've been going through a lot of bibliographic data, and uh, I'm really noticing just how far back the machine learning literature goes. You know, in geophysics, there's tons of articles from the 80s about neural networks um, mm-hmm. predicting Lithologies and well logs and production, and you know even like recurrent neural networks. There's a paper on that from like 1990. That's like 27 years ago that people were working on that stuff. It's kind of amazing, right? So like, it's been making me wonder like, what's different now? What's what? It, has anything changed? Why didn't it take off back then? If machine learning so awesome, like, it's, well, the, curious. I, I think it was really
2: pushed. By companies like Google, right? Because they were the, they were the first type of company. Not, I could just say all online companies include Amazon, Facebook, um, but, but they really had to deal with you know just all these streams of data from users clicking, right? And they and they didn't have uh, the sort of hang up that um, a lot of I'll just say earth scientists have that, of of assuming that you have to know. Uh, every little every little uh point in a, a process you have to understand the details before you can understand the macroscopic picture right but but google is like we don't necessarily need to know just yet um exactly who our user is that's clicking on this ad we just need to know for instance that they clicked or they didn't click and you know we count one as a win it was a lot and then we optimize for those clicks and then as things sort of uh, progressed, you know, they could get more information on people, where you are, what time of day, what kind of computer you use. And then when they, you know, you have know, companies like Facebook, now they can use uh, biographical information, appreciate all your relationships, you know, and Google's doing that too. So it's a kind of grown, but but they had the challenge early on of building the infrastructure, including, you know, big data centers and then algorithms um, that, that allowed them to get ahead. And so uh, the oil companies will catch up for example but um, but it, I, I think it's really been driven by by just the, the internet technology companies and of course they have all the big AI te- teams right mm-hmm. so it's um, it, it, yeah that's I think that's been the, the hang up, and and the fact that they're doing so well and, and they're jumping into you know auto, uh, self-driving cars um, it, it's getting uh, uh, oil companies attention and
1: they're starting to hire so, now yeah right right um, but do you think all of that so the fact that the landscape outside of kind of you know this I guess the pure research that was being done 25 years ago um, do, you, do you think that's going to make a difference for how far we get so to speak with with uh, AI Kind of this time around in in oil and gas or in subsurface or science in general.
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, well, the, one of the big problems, just, you know, I'm a little biased because I come mainly from like the reflection seismology world and uh, you know world of like you know three D seismic processing acquisition and everything. And yeah. it's it's always been the most expensive project, right? And and some of the first people to get cut when oil prices. You know go down are, are you know the geophysicists and, and they and they flash budgets for collecting new data sets and doing fancy processing programs because you know it's the the value that the value to a, an engineer uh isn't always obvious especially when like the best resolution that you can get is maybe 30 feet or 50 feet you know down deep and they're like well you know for for less than the price of collecting a 3D survey, we could just stick a well down in Oklahoma and Mm -hmm. test it and collect our well logs, right? So um, I I had those conversations all the time with engineers about the resolution issue, and and it was something that we never could overcome, right? And so, um, but but also the other issue is the cost. Now, if if we could bring the cost down, if we can't, because right now, seismic data processing is still too manual. You know, pe- pe- you know, people having to edit data and pick velocities and like the whole process is, is very slow. If we could reduce the processing time on, on 3D seismic data, then that would help geophysics as an industry or, or help um, help what, what we do be valuable sooner to oil companies because the delay, that's another factor it takes you know, mm. it could take months to get the seismic project approved. Months to collect the data. Um, you know, months to do a first pass processing, and you do all your migration. It could be like well over a year between the time you approve a project and start to see some results. So, if we can shrink those down with machine learning, um, that would be a, a big advance.
1: Yeah, I, <laughs> I have this sort of. Uh... I should probably try and find some data to actually corroborate whether this is what really happens. But I have this sort of pet theory, I guess, that, that actually these projects, if you can make some, if you can basically do it faster and cheaper, then, and I don't know if this is just sort of CGG going, oh, here's an opportunity. Well, now the opportunity is to, you know, add some new dimension to the data or some new level of complexity or some supposedly uh, better level of imaging so that it takes the same amount of money and it takes the same length of time. We're actually just pushing those sort of incremental, what you hope are quality improvements, but what I think are actually, I think we actually have gone beyond now what the, the level of certainty that we can cope with in the interpretation process. So, do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, it, yeah,
2: the, the expectations get inflated, right? And I'm and, yeah, uh, yeah. so sure you can do it cheaper, but, but I don't want just, uh, you know, a 3D preset migration by itself is not enough anymore. You want all the attributes, right? right? Exactly. And yeah. um, and then you want to do all the fancy modeling with the attributes and the well data. So, but that's great. At, at the same time, it means you can do that, right? And yeah, and, and if cool. more people can do, if more can do that for overall less cost or more for the same amount, then it's still a win.
1: Yeah, it's still a win. Totally. I, 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 if if uh you know i guess if you think we actually can make use of all of that extra information do you know right because i i wonder a little bit if actually we haven't really figured out just how to do good reproducible structural interpretation in a very simple way in 3d let alone stratigraphic problems and subsalt problems and like those are Maybe I'm maybe I'm exaggerating the difficulty of the problem, but um, it, it it does occur to me that these sort of projects expand to fill the space, the budget available. <laughs> oh, you can do it cheaper now. We'll do more.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that that's um, well. It it also comes from maybe uh, overthinking the problem, or it, I guess it depends on at what uh, level you're talking about. If you're really trying to get some very precise results in, in a specific location or if you're um happy right. with just getting a whole lot of data to find you know a whole bunch of you know potential hot spots where you could drill right so so in the, in the big picture case the you know images it might be blurry at a certain point but but you can do the next round of processing or evaluation when you get to some smaller scale you know so um yeah. Depends on the problem.
1: <laughs> right, right. We were talking the other week about how maybe if AI turns out to be as awesome as we think it can be, um, maybe you won't even need to do imaging anymore and the AI will just take your shot records and produce interpretations or not even bother interpreting. Like Maybe you don't need interpretation, maybe that's a human crutch, you know. The sort of geological step maybe it can go straight to oil finding which as you say is the sort of goal <laughs>
2: yeah yeah i i guess that well you saying that made me think uh or, or recall um just the fact that there is already so much data i mean there, there's a ton of especially on the onshore right, areas, right. um you know there, there's just there's well logs going back to the 30s or 40s you know and and if you want to now you, you could potentially um, scan them off of, you know, the, the page. Well, now most of them are scanned, as far as I know. Um, and then now you want to get the values off of those logs. You want to you want to get the digital values, and then you want to pump those through your machine learning algorithm. Um, I I think it's possible we, we might if, if we can if companies can mine their old data better, they might not need new data all the time. Might you know they, they might right. have enough, right? And um, it's just not being uh, uh, mined effectively right now. So I, 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 I want to bring up examples, but I, I, I might be giving away company secrets. But uh, I mean, I was at one. I'll just say an oil company. Um, I've been to a few, so I don't have to refill which one. And um, and they had bought uh, almost a million well logs for like mm-hmm. a dollar a piece. And um, and I said, uh, oh, you know, that's what that's a Big data problem. We should, you know, use that. We should use machine learning to, to study all these logs. And, and instead, um, the the geologist jumps down my throat immediately, and uh, and, and and I it, it was actually very it uh, very hostile. Their their reaction was, was very hostile. And um, from from no, you can never do that. It won't work. You know, a computer can never uh, interpret like a human does. To uh-oh what if she's right? <laughs> you know that's that's my job that's going to go away because right now all all that i well not all but but some of the, the basic uh, tasks of geologists to pick well logs, right and then and then geophysicists are you know considered the people who draw lines on seismic data and that's those are two very manual processes that really could be done probably better by a computer and over uh bigger, you know, large data sets. And, um, and if, if the geologists don't want the computer scientists to kind of come in and take their jobs, well, that, that's where the geologists and geophysicists can um, take advantage of, of their domain expertise, and maybe write their own code, right. And so so that they know what the code is doing, and, that, and they're confident about the results that they're getting. And yeah. um, that's going to take, going to take a Bit of a, it might be a generational change because you're gonna need more people with the coding skills to, you know, tackle some of those problems. Like the, I noticed the uh, the challenge that you have uh for this month, I guess, is, is to in uh, the leading edge, right? Yeah. Is, is to predict uh, lithologies for well logs. That's a great project, right. and I, and I think that um, that that'll get people's attention and and maybe get you know, there'll be more people if they. Have the freedom to, in their oil companies to
1: start doing some of that in house. Yeah, yeah. What we haven't, I don't think, seen yet, because, because, I, I, you know, I would encourage people, like in in the situation of the person who freaked out when you suggested, you know, using AI to look at those well logs, is like, even if you aren't part of the coding process, at least be part of the sort of code form, like the formulation of the problem and informing the. you know the way that you attack it with feature engineering and I mean essentially all that's basically just doing petrophysics it's encoding stuff it's just that now you get a really good idea about whether it worked or not instead of a kind of oh yeah that looks geological kind of uh, yardstick which is kind of I feel like what we generally use these days it's like yeah that looks right or that came from that book so that's legit there's very little like well can I actually validate this against my data set which is I think one of the kind of key things in quote unquote data science that people need to pay attention to like rigorous cross validation and the the total kind of well as objective being as objective as humans can be right because we're not always objective um that's one of the kind of cornerstones of good data science and I think w- as a geoscience community we do well to pay more attention to that you know it's a good principle to have so, we've just had a listener post a question,
0: or not a comment, which I'm going to phrase as a question, which is kind of an interesting concept. He, he mentions that um, it must be possible to use a machine to find oil for us because it's a binary classification problem, right? I mean, is it water or is it not water saturated? Um, and I, I'd like you to touch briefly on how you. Whether or not you think that that is a is an achievable goal, and what kind of training, data, and pre-processing steps do we need to uh, cope with before we start asking machines where to drill for oil?
2: Well, it depends on what what your data is, right? I mean, just say, is it water or oil? Is it seismic data? Are you looking at well log data? Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> well, if you have it all, then you're you're lucky, right? I mean, if you have well log that means you've already drilled in so you would know what's there. Um, there's not much mystery to that. Then it's just, it's kind of a mapping problem. Um, but uh, I, I think that the machine learning problem in this case is when you have a sparse wells and maybe a big 3D data set or multiple 3D data sets that are kind of sewn together. And um, and the trick is, is that when it comes to you know trying to figure out what the rocks are, you don't have you, don't, you have a little limited um, response, right? You, you could have uh, you know there's certain things that affect the velocity, certain things affect the density. If you don't have uh, AVO information, for example, um, you won't be able to get elastic um, uh, elastic property information. So it, it, it's not it's not such a simple problem, but um, I think actually what got me in touch with Matt over a year ago uh, was when I was using a uh, self-organizing map um, to try to classify uh, you know areas of, of a, of a uh, reservoir and um, and try to you know predict along with oil production information. Um, so that was useful um, but it uh, in, that, in that particular case, didn't get off the ground, or or the only way to test it is to drill, right? And Yeah, um, yeah, I I did that, I started it before oil prices fell, and by the time I was done, (laughs) uh, I think it was like December, and yeah, oil prices were looking pretty bad. It's
0: interesting to hear you say that, because just Um, over the last couple of weeks, I've been building a self-organizing map thingamajig to do AVO analysis and reservoir differentiation. And uh, so far, <clears throat> no dice. Uh, so, how is, is your is your project um, closed books off the off the record? Was it for an oil company, or is it open?
2: yeah 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 no no and I yeah I, I couldn't well I left before I could finish it and then yeah I probably couldn't have published it anyway. Um, but uh, or at least that particular data set. But um, uh, I, I used principal component analysis first to kind of clean it up and and yeah. Um, so, in, in our case, we had 64 or so seismic attributes mm-hmm. and, you know, with principal component analysis, I guess we reduced it down to maybe 10, mm-hmm. or, you know, components with, with uh, information and then used and then put that into the self-organizing map and you got much, we got much better uh, results than if we tried doing it without principal component Was- analysis.
0: Was that sort of on a sample by sample basis, or did you break out the wave field into particular events or seismic uh, pieces or anything? Um,
2: uh, This was, it was from the seismic volume, so it's actually like little raster values for each.
0: Right. Okay. The reason I ask is the path I'm going down at the moment is to take Multiple attributes, as you say, but build a feature vector such that the inputs encompass a wavelengths worth of information. Um, so, if you're using uh, shot records, for example, or, or image image uh, image records, they, uh, the input feature vectors would the prototype vectors would be sample waveforms built from uh, model AVO modeling and then the vectors the, the, the you're trying to classify would be uh, extracted wavelets from true seismic data and its derived attributes. Why
2: are you looking at the waveforms and the offset as opposed
0: to just, for example, and gradient? Sure, I just wanted to try something in the sort of time-space domain before moving into those more abstract attribute basis
2: yeah um what i did and uh this is actually a master's project way back at columbia was i used the genetic algorithm on the on the stack tree Mm -hmm. and and just try to model velocity and thickness and Mm -hmm. then found and happened to find areas of uh low velocity and density um and then used abo to to try to break out those areas. So, so in the, you know, in the, the 1D case, you're just looking at thickness, you're looking at kind of a vertical, semi-vertical structure, and um, in the AVO case, you're trying to extract the uh, velocity density, or you might say elastic attributes,
1: depending on what you're,
2: you're looking at. So, so you might kind of break the problem apart into two steps.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's a really interesting approach. I, I like the idea of sort of building dimensionality into the problem to tackle different pieces of. Unless
2: you're doing, these. Are you doing
0: forward modeling? Well, that's the idea. I'm not there yeah. yet, but that that is right. where I'm headed. Um, so I want to ask a, a completely tangential question. The we have a we have a note in the in the notes in the show notes here um, about the the non-commercial aspects of machine learning as it relates to geo stuff or maybe not even geo stuff um, you know we've been talking sort of about uh, industrial applications commercial applications what about what about research projects uh, something very far forward looking or something that doesn't relate to industry in any way what's your what's your favorite thing going on right now
2: um, well so far the things I'm focusing on I, I'm kind of selfish <laughs> I'm I'm focusing on on things that are useful to me and and i figure if i can make them useful to me then maybe they'll be useful to other people and, and if they're not useful to other people well then they're still useful to me and and you know this, you know so, so i might not make money off of it but it could help me do my work better or faster yeah. and um so uh, one let's see one area that i've been working on is uh natural language processing using uh word embeddings which is gotten pretty popular on the internet lots of people have been using uh, word vectors for example to um, you know classify whiskey based on whiskey reviews and um, you know I I've been doing it because uh, I'm lazy (laughs) and I don't want to have to read all of my geology papers and and and, you know one thing that I've encountered especially doing more onshore uh, exploration is um if, you know when you go into a new area whether it's like maybe new mexico or texas or oklahoma you have to learn all the formation names and all the rock types and everything and um but but if you could use a, a natural language processing algorithm to just sort of extract those words you know say what what minerals are in the such and such formation in texas mm-hmm. you know then that would be really useful and mm-hmm. uh, and so i have i i made a kind of I don't know if i want to call it a prototype but i but i have a uh program that does that and i presented some initial results at agu last month and um and so basically uh i you know ran word to deck on about 300 papers or so or how many i forget how many it was a few hundred papers uh from some areas I had studied in the past. One was uh, the Woodlark Basin in Papua New Guinea, which is a active rift. Another one is the which is another rift in the uh, Pacific. And then, um, and then some area. Oh, oh the Gulf of Mexico Basin and surrounding areas. So, so what I was curious about was what could the model learn about rifts, and could the model help me um, learn things maybe about one rift based on information that is found from other rich right mm. uh, so, so maybe there were some commonalities uh, you know or, or some relationships that, that it could learn. and um, so I did that and uh, there's some really interesting results. for example, it, it learned that uh, geologic time scale just from word usage in papers. so so I could, um awesome. yeah so, so there's a let's say it goes triassic Jurassic Cretaceous. If I picked the word vectors for Triassic and Cretaceous and knew that Jurassic was the middle one or nearby, you know, and um, and I could I could march through the uh, The geologic time scale with all the, the names of the eras and periods and, and it had learned those and, and if, if it got one wrong. It usually meant that I didn't have enough papers for covering that era. So I grab a few more and throw them in the batch right just to kind of map it out and um, so, so that was interesting. And then the ne- next step was to uh, kind of classify types of words, classify mineral names, uh, what mineral names, types of or rock names, formation names. Uh, what would the other thing? Obviously, geologic ages, and oh, structural names. You know, whether it's a, a fault or a hill or a, or like a grobin. And you know, and, and so I, uh, I, I use a classification algorithm that just classifies uh, word vectors for those five groups and then uh, and then I, I i said well wait i don't need to classify like the 50 states i already know what those are so I created a list of 50 states i don't need to you know classify the uh elements in the periodic table i know what those are so i threw those in a list and then and then i i said okay now for a given query for example i used um deep. I said, you know what are what what structural terms are most closely associated with HeSD and um, and you know what elements, what rock types, what rock names? and it, and it could find those. And uh, it came up with one really really interesting result because I, I also ran it against states because I was that's just how it worked. It's you know running everything against states, even though HeSD is out with Pacific, it kept coming up with Mississippi. And uh, and I I left that result in when I showed the the poster at AGU and people were like why is, why is you know Mississippi there it doesn't make sense and then it occurred to me that Mississippi is actually the failed rift arm from when the Gulf of Mexico opened and so it actually makes sense that yeah Mississippi would be affiliated with pesky rifts you know out in the Pacific and um, which you know. Uh, a compute, that's something that a computer scientist might miss if they didn't actually know a little bit of geological history, right? <laughs> and um, and so it, it, it it's a one thing that I I think is useful. It, you know, might I might not have the best uh, AI algorithm, you know, compared to I don't know whatever the they're doing at Stanford or Oxford or something, but I can get it good enough so that I can some useful results for myself and then my domain knowledge comes into play where I can kind of pick and choose uh, mm-hmm. among the results and it's, and it's almost like a say—a kind of recommendation algorithm. I'm not expecting it to give me the uh, most ac- or be accurate results but I'm hoping it will give me some suggestions or ideas that I could then explore further.
0: Yeah, wade through all the nonsense for you.
2: Right. And then you don't have to read all the papers. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or yeah, then right. you know, then you know what to look for. You might say, okay, well now I'll, I'll go back and, and I can do a search and I can just find those papers with some, you know, keywords. But, the one thing that's really cool about it compared to, for example, just doing a word search on paper. Sure. You'll get the whole paper, but then you have like, you know, 30 pages or more to read. Whereas this is actually kind of reading all these papers for you and, and finding things that are useful.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's fascinating. Actually, we'll put a link to the AGU paper in the notes here um, so that people can look at it, along with uh, your publications in Nature and in Science, which is about the most impressive thing I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Dr. Jackie Floyd, I want to thank you for coming on the show today and giving us hope for the future. Yeah, thanks, thank
2: Jackie. You. It's good to meet
0: you. This fun. Yeah, good meeting you. Guys, we'll see you next week with Chris Jackson on the show. Episode oh, I need 30. to unplug
1: us, don't I? Yeah,
0: thank you. I was trying to cue you in on that. <laughs>